Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. Hello, wackos. Welcome to another episode of Without a Country. I am Corinne Fisher. Oh my God, you guys, you're going to be treated to some real looks in the, the coming weeks because uh, this is not this is a this is a vintage piece. But I have so many vintage pieces that I haven't fit into or that I never fit into when I order them, you know, off wherever Etsy or whatever. I went on a I went on a real vintage weirdo dress, sometimes moo moo house dress, uh, ordering spree during COVID. Um, and so now I'm taking all the pieces out, especially some of these with like crazy cinch waists, because you know, like a size six in 1980 meant. different than a size six today a size six today is like a size 12 from 1980 so I'll be like oh size six that's what I am and then I'll order it from like the 1980s shop and they're like bitch America got fatter um but anyway so I have all these these have uh shoulder pads in them which I don't need because I'm kind of built like a linebacker to begin with uh up top fun fact about me um but uh yeah so just gonna treat you to this look at this there's a lot of I don't know where what room is I guess you know this this feels nice there's there's some uh wiggle room for your armpits you air them out a little bit i'll take you on a safari maybe i don't know this looks a little costa rican it's fun we're having a good time um all right welcome to the show everybody happy hanukkah just a quick reminder that, you know, your Jewish friends lighting a menorah doesn't mean that they don't want Palestine to be free. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that they're a Zionist. It just means they're a Jewish person celebrating the traditional Jewish festivity of the times, the Festival of Lights, because um, it was such a bummer. This year, we're still in the midst of Hanukkah. You know, we love to really drag things out, uh, us Jews. But uh, 
yeah, it, I really love Hanukkah. I look forward to it. I especially love when it's um, kind of the appetizer to Christmas. I hate when Christmas and Hanukkah are the same time, and I hate when like Hanukkah goes after Christmas. That's not necessary, but perfect timing this year. It's the perfect appetizer to um, Christmas, which I mean, most Jews will recognize that Christmas is Christmas is the main event, whether or not they believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. Um, so just acknowledge that we know. We you know. Um, but uh, I love I love lighting my menorah. I love saying the prayers nightly. I do it with my dog. I think it's really fun. I, I, I think menorahs are beautiful. It's a fun celebration. It makes me feel connected to my heritage. And so I kind of felt a little bit torn about it this year. Um, I usually post about it on my Instagram story. And I just was like, oh, I'm going to post this. And I, I had this fear that people, I would get like shitty backlash like I've been getting from some clips on this show um, that were anti-Semitic or that were making people think that I thought ways politically that I did not when in reality I just wanted to celebrate like uh, a celebration and a, uh, a holiday from my culture. Luckily, uh, I have not received any such messages, but there's been a lot of menorah destruction. Um, there was a there was a story circulating uh, about uh, a, a menorah being extinguished by someone in Polish politics that I just read. Felt unnecessary to cover here. I don't think Polish politics have a ton of effect on us, but I don't know. And that's not anything against the Polish people. I myself am part Polish. Um, but uh, yeah, and there was uh, Christina. Uh, my co-host on Guys We Fucked. If you're not familiar, Christina Hutchinson, she told me that in her neighborhood, someone uh, vandalized uh, a menorah that was out. And I've heard a lot about that. So that just kind of bummed me out. So if you are like out to vandalize a menorah or if you want a Palestine to be free, uh, that's not the way to do it. And it's not even like it's a not even the correct message you're sending. Like you're conflating just being a Jewish person in the world with uh, Zionism or being like anti-Palestinian. And they're not all the same thing. So I feel like if you're going to make like a huge stance, make sure it's correct and accurate. And like, I'm not necessarily against vandalism, but your vandalism doesn't make sense for the point you're trying to make, right? I think it hurts your cause more than you think it does. So that's just my... Hanukkah message because I've been thinking about it every night and it's been putting a, a little a bit of a damper on an otherwise lovely holiday. Um, and if you and I also I feel like the word Zionism has been tossed around a lot. And it's another one of those words that it's like, do we even know what it means as a culture? So I just wanted to read about a little snippet of that. If there's a huge article on it in Wikipedia, if you really want to dive in. But Zionism um, is a movement that emerged in the 19th century to enable the establishment of a homeland for Jewish people in Palestine, a region roughly corresponding to the land of Israel in Jewish tradition. Following the establishment of Israel, Zionism became an ideology that supports, quote, the development and protection of the state of Israel. Like, very succinctly, Jews are known to be like this, the one group of people that doesn't have a homeland, right? So they wanted to create a homeland for themselves. Like, that's what it is. Um, 
I certainly don't think that a homeland should be created by taking someone else's homeland, um, even though America is based on that. <laughs> I, I, had I been around at that time, I would have been like, I feel like we shouldn't do this. But um, yeah, that's kind of uh, what, what it is very succinctly. But there's a lot more information on it. But I also think that Jews should have a place to live where they feel um, safe. And I don't think that every place is a safe place for Jews. So it's an ongoing uh, conversation um, that I don't live in Israel, no, but I've been there, but I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't go back, to be honest. Um, I liked it. It was great. Just tense. Um, okay. So this week's enemy of the state, let's get right to it, folks. Number one, I have two, actually. Of the state. So the first enemy of the state this week, this is just breaking, is the Texas Supreme Court. You've probably heard about Kate Cox all week. Um, There's some updates on that in the past couple of hours. Of course, Texas is involved. You know, I love that it's like Texas's uh, state motto is don't mess with Texas, but they apparently have no problems messing with everyone else. I really love that for them. So this article is from CNN, Texas Supreme Court rules against pregnant woman seeking abortion as she leaves state for procedure. The state, uh, the Texas Supreme Court on Monday reversed a lower court's ruling that would have allowed a woman to obtain an abortion under the state's medical emergency exception, though the woman's attorneys hours earlier said she had left the state to have the procedure. Um, Kate Cox sought uh, the abortion after learning her fetus has a fatal condition and doctors told her she could risk her future fertility if she doesn't get the procedure. A state judge last week ruled Cox, who was 21 weeks pregnant, could terminate her pregnancy, but the Texas Supreme Court temporarily put that ruling on hold late Friday. On Monday, the Center for Reproductive Rights announced the 31-year-old mother had left Texas to get health care elsewhere following what the group uh, that represents Cox described as a week of legal whiplash. Then hours later, the state's high court ruled against her. The ruling calls into question whether the decision could deter women in similar situations from seeking a court-authorized abortion. Cox's lawsuit is believed to be one of the first attempts in the country by a person seeking a court-ordered abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, according to The New York Times. While the center did not disclose more details of Cox's plans, she had received offers to help her access abortion elsewhere from Kansas to Colorado to Canada, its statement said. Cox wants her care the fastest way possible, her attorney said. The medical emergency exception. On Thursday, a state district court judge sided with Cox and granted a temporary restraining order against the state so she could legally have an abortion under the state's medical emergency exception. Texas has a near complete abortion ban with narrow exceptions, which just makes me laugh in my head with all the comics who want to move to Austin. Have a great time. We know you love condoms so much. Not. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, quickly threatened criminal prosecution against doctors or hospitals who would help facilitate the abortion, saying they could face charges even after the 14-day temporary restraining order. CNN has reached out to Paxton's office for comment. Late Friday night, the state's high court temporarily blocked Cox from obtaining an abortion while it reviewed the case. In its ruling late Monday, the Texas Supreme Court, comprised of nine Republicans, called on the state's medical board to provide more guidance on the medical emergency exception at the heart of Cox's case. The high court also released an opinion 
saying Cox's doctor did not establish or attest that Cox's symptoms were life-threatening and noting it should be up to doctors, not judges, to decide whether to provide an abortion. No one disputes that Ms. Cox's pregnancy has been extremely complicated. Any parents would be devastated to learn of their unborn fatal condition diagnosis. Some difficulties in pregnancy, however, even serious ones, do not pose the heightened risks to the mother. The exception encompasses the opinion states. Wild shit going on here. Um, The exception requires a doctor to decide whether Ms. Cox's difficulties pose such risks, the ruling continues. A doctor asked a court to pre-authorize the abortion, yet she could not, or at least did not, attest to the court that Ms. Cox's condition poses the risks the exception requires. And what is that? Hemorrhaging until you almost are dead? Fuck you, dude. A separate case pending before the Texas Supreme Court seeks clarity on the medical emergency exception. Notably, in its opinion, the court called on the Texas Medical Board to provide further guidance on the law. I mean, this is the joke here. They basically want 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 to say, like, you don't get an abortion unless you're at death's doorstep as the mother. We don't and we absolutely aren't even taking into account the uh, emotional trauma that you might be under from, like, having to go to full term with a pregnancy when the baby like has is going to die anyway, like that kind of shit. They don't care about that. Uh, The courts cannot go further by entering into the medical judgment arena. The Texas Medical Board, however, can do more to provide guidance in response to any confusion that currently prevails. My confusion is why you guys such dickheads. Um, Each of the three branches of government has a distinct role. I bet. Um, (laughs) Branch one is fucking you over. Branch two is fucking specifically women over. And what's branch three? Fucking people of color over? Probably. Uh, Each of the three branches of government has a distinct role. And while the judiciary cannot compel executive branch entities to do their part, It is obvious that the legal process works more smoothly when they do. Fears for women's health and future fertility. For Cox, this past week of legal limbo has been hellish. Nancy Northup, president and CEO at the Center for Reproductive Rights, said in a statement, her health is on the line. She's been in and out of the emergency room and she couldn't wait any longer. And also, I mean, the stress, the publicity. Can you imagine going through um, a serious medical procedure, um, learning that your child is not going to survive after the joy of, you know, accepting that you're going to be a mom and then having this all be publicized on top of it. I think I I feel like people who like have never had like news stories written about them kind of don't understand that extra layer of fucking intensity that this is adding and like good for her for making um for fighting uh for her rights and making this public because she's gonna uh I think really help a lot of women in the future but like she didn't need to do this she could have fucking just you know gone on a bus gone someplace else and been like fuck this noise uh this is why judges and politicians should not be making healthcare decisions for pregnant people they are not doctors Texas's medical emergency exception allows for an abortion if the mother has a life-threatening physical condition while pregnant or has a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major major bodily function. Critics argue the statute is too vague. I mean, abortion laws love to be vague. That's how they get you. And has a chilling effect on doctors who fear criminal prosecution. The same legal group representing Cox, the Center for Reproductive Rights, is also representing a group of women and physicians before the Texas Supreme Court in the lawsuit seeking clarity. The state argues the law is adequate. 
Um, and and that's what you know. That's what I want a law to be. Not good. Just fucking passable. Uh, Cox has been to the emergency room four times in the last month due to symptoms like severe cramping, diarrhea, leaking of fluid, and elevated vital signs. Last time I had elevated vital signs when I was blacked out on my the floor of my bathroom for what turned out to be a kidney stone. I mean that I I actually thought I was dying. And if you guys have followed my medical journey over the past uh, 10 years, mostly on guys we fucked, you know, I have a very high threshold for pain. Okay. Um, And because she's already delivered two children via C-section, her physicians have warned she is at high risk for complications, including possible uterine rupture in future pregnancies. This pregnancy would need to be delivered via another C-section, which Cox fears could jeopardize her health and future fertility, her attorneys said. Additionally, the fetus has uh, tricep. Trisomy 18, um, a fatal genetic condition, sometimes called Edwards syndrome, that can cause heart defects and other organ abnormalities. In at least 95% of cases, the fetus doesn't survive full term and the pregnancy ends in miscarriage or stillbirth, according to the Cleveland Clinic. Paxton argued Cox has not established her symptoms as to meet the life-threatening criteria in the law. This law basically is set up to be like, Again, we're going to wait until it gets really, really fucking bad and you have IVs and tubes and you're fighting for your life. And then maybe just then we'll let you have your abortion because it's our kink to watch women almost die. The filing from his office stated Cox inquired about getting an abortion only after learning her fetus might not survive the pregnancy or long afterward and already knew she might need another C-section before her current pregnancy. Plaintiffs plead no facts linking Ms. Cox's physical condition related to the birth of this child to the loss of fertility. Instead, it appears she will face the same risks regarding the birth of any future child, the filing states. State says doctor's opinion is not enough, as his office has done in the broader case on this issue before the state Supreme Court. Paxton's attorneys also argued a fatal fetal condition does not meet the medical exception, adding the exception applies only to the mother's condition, right? And is that sentence right there, again, doubling down, says, we don't give a shit if you're going to go carry a, a, a baby, a fetus to full term and then have a stillbirth, um, which is, I would imagine, extremely uh, traumatizing on the mother, knowing that you have a dead fetus in you for months and months and months. We, they don't care about that. They just say, again, we're waiting until you're almost dead and then maybe we'll give you a pass. Paxton's office... <clears throat> Also said none of the physicians who have treated Cox in the Dallas-Fort Worth area have recommended an abortion. You know, I don't know that many doctors with the uh, feelings around abortion are recommending abortions per se. They might put it as an option on the table. I think it would be very difficult for an abortion in this uh, political, sociopolitical climate to be like, uh, you know, take out their prescription pad and be like, I recommend I'm prescribing Kate Cox one abortion. Pick it up at CVS. Dr. Damla Carson, a Houston-based physician and a plaintiff in the other case, is cited in legal filings as having reviewed Cox's medical records, recommended the abortion, and agreed to provide the medical uh, care. 
The state wrote in the filing Carson's and, you know, that's why she's listed here because of how difficult I think it is for a doctor to actually say that, especially in Texas. The state wrote in the filing Carson's recommendation is not enough. And then even when you recommend it, it's not enough. So who the fuck cares? Just do whatever you want to do. Just stick a hanger up there. That's what they want you to do. Uh, what he's Paxton saying is that physicians in Texas shouldn't be practicing medicine, said Molly Duane, an attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Zing, zing, Molly. That was a good one. Ken Paxton is practicing medicine because that's what he wants. He wants to review her medical records. He wants to decide if he thinks she's sick enough. Yes, it's all about fucking control for these people, these these, these little men with, with big egos. Um, when people tout the medical exceptions to abortion bans as meaning that the abortion bans are okay and that people who really need care are still getting it, that's a lie. The case shows why it is completely completely untenable for patients to have to come to court and ask for court authorization for life-saving medical care, she said. It's simply outrageous and people should be outraged uh, but what is ha- uh, about what is happening in Texas right now. Um, so that's going to be our main story of the week. I'm going to get into more um, information on that later, but I just wanted to start us off with this because that's been something that's been going around this week. But, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see the effects of Roe v. Wade being overturned heavily now. Because, you know, it was like a year ago, so you needed time to get pregnant and shit. Um, but we're doing it. We are doing it. Texas, you never let me down. Or you always let me down. Which sucks because I got to say, and a lot of comics agree with me on this, Texas, arguably some of the best co- uh, comedy audiences, not only in the U.S., but in the world, out of, out of the English-speaking world that we've performed in. But goddamn, are your fucking politics shit. They're shit. They're bad. Um, all right. Mm, let's move on. Oh, my second enemy of the state this week. Guys, it's me. It's your girl. It's me. So enemy of the state. I talk a lot about animal testing. Um, I always say kind of like, I, I, I don't like to be annoying with, you know, the the animal welfare that I talk about, right? Because I think over the years, um, you know, vegans or cruelty free people have made their points um but it's overshadowed by how annoying they are and even me as like an animal person i i realized that and i said similar to what guys we fucked i hope did um a bit with feminism where like we we tried to rebrand it a little bit right make it a little sexier make it a little bit funnier because it was lacking a sense of humor I try to make um, my thoughts on animal welfare um, less insufferable, okay? That's what I try to do with them. And um, and so I, I've talked a lot about, I think the first thing that you can do, a really easy thing that's not gonna really affect your lifestyle in a big way, is just start loading your bathroom with products that are cruelty-free, right? Like to not actively test on animals as part of your lifestyle, that's like step one in just helping animals be treated as the the sentient beings that they are, okay? Or sentient if you are in the UK. Um, I researched that today. The, per- the, the, the I was like, why do I hear people saying it both ways? It's like, because some of them are British. Um, and I realized when I was in the eye, uh, when I was restocking my bathroom at Dwayne Reed, I was like, fuck, I never even thought of this. I was like, toothpaste and deodorant is testing on animals too. And that, that just never even crossed my mind because I was thinking like makeups and shampoos and then fucking uh, deodorant and toothpaste slipped through the cracks. And I did some research and 
it's not great. You don't have a lot of options um, because you're definitely going to have to use a natural deodorant. And I've had so many problems in the past with natural deodorant. And I'm not just talking about smelling bad. I am talking about like I got full hive breakouts in my armpits. I think that was because it was disrupting when I was getting laser hair removal. And since that was a while ago for my laser hair removal in my armpits, I was like, let me try it again because I really don't want bunnies getting deodorant in their eyes so I don't smell bad. And I went through it's all it's, you know, it's all the usual suspects that don't test on animals. If you're interested in in checking it, you can go to leapingbunny.org. That's like probably the best place to uh, check your products. But because it's like Tom's of Maine, which I got to be honest, in my experience, it does not work um, as deodorant. So I tried a native made me break out. So then I was like, let me try Humble. Okay, I found a Humble deodorant in Marshall's shout out. Or is it TJ? No, it's Marshall's by me. Um, and the, I mean, I, I, I'm gonna smell like an incense stick for the rest of time. Okay, my the 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 fragrance I had to get was fucking like frankincense and Palo Alto, and I was like, why don't I just stuff granola inside my vagina at this point? But I love animals so much that I'm willing to smell my own. I'm gonna I'm gonna smell like a walking New Age shop. And so here we are. I'm on like day. I don't know. I'm I'm at the end of week one of using the humble deodorant. The smell actually not bad. I don't the, I don't mind the frankincense scent. Very Christmassy. I'm like one of the wise men under my um armpits. And um and I didn't break out, which is nice cuz everything makes me break out. My skin is very sensitive. And you know, there's times when it feels like it feels like a little like maybe like I sweat a little more, but also I think it's okay if you sweat a little bit. Like your body is supposed to release toxins. I'm not a huge sweater to begin with. So that's my review. But yeah, basically any of the major brands of deodorant, good luck. Good luck if you think you're gonna find one that's not like made on someone's farm that doesn't test on animals, because you're not. Um, I usually use degree. There are some like degrees and doves that don't um, test on animals like the finished product, but then like the the umbrella company, which I think is like Unilever for most of them, they test on animals. So it's like uh, I really tried to go away from the animal testing. All right. Hey, there, responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. Do you want to get high? Next question. How about really high? Third question. Really super duper legally high? Well, now's the time to go over to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8. You know this sponsor. They've been with us for so long um, and they keep buying ads, guys, because keep people keep buying the product. The product keeps working and then people go and buy the product again. All right. This is simple science. It's not, maybe it's not a science more. It's like a more. It's just like so. I don't know if it's science. Well, I'm sure someone did a study on it somewhere. Anyway, the vapes, the gummies, they help you disassociate, which is extremely important for some of you during the holidays based on feedback I've been getting from following you on social media. So if you're over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states where this is legal, you're going to head over to YoDelta.com to suck up on Delta 8. Delta 8 is found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states to get you high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stone needs. And I can tell you that Delta 8 works and that these products should be taken responsibly. So once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. And if you use promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. That's a lot off, okay? Once more... 
That is promo code GAS, G-A-S, for 25% off. Yo Delta, home of the Delta 8, that will get you super high. Now, back to without a country. And then for toothpaste, guys, you're also fucked. Crest, Colgate, all those, all the major ones, they're all, they're all putting toothpaste in a monkey's eye to make sure that it can whiten our teeth. And so the options again, Tom's of Maine. I think their toothpaste is okay. Um, Burt's Bees, obviously not vegan, but it's cruelty free. Um, and I found some other Australian brand that had a moon on it. I forgot to look at it before I left, but that I found it again in Marshall's. They have a good Marshall's TJ Maxx. They have a good selection of cruelty free stuff. And I've been using that. And I, I think my, I think my mouth feels good. My teeth didn't fall out yet. So that's, uh, that was me being the enemy of the state this week. I also started following this, uh, this girl on Instagram and she, She adopted a beagle that was subject to animal testing um, over the years. And so she became very uh, into uh, finding cruelty-free products. And they don't all have to be expensive. Like she does Target runs and stuff. I have to find her. I I lost her on my feed, but she really inspired me. And she's the one who kind of pointed out because I reached out to her immediately. And I was like, I love the work you're doing. Thanks so much. And she was like, uh, you know. When she's in New York City, hopefully we'll hook up. Maybe we'll have her on the show. Maybe we'll have her beagle on the show. He seems timid. I don't, he's he's seen things that he shouldn't have seen. It's pretty obvious. Um, but yeah, she kind of uh, her one of her videos kind of jogged my memory or or kind of shook my brain, and it was like ah, of course, fucking toothpaste and deodorant. So you know. Again, don't beat yourself up. And like, I have definitely been in the aisle of Dwayne Reed for like 15 minutes just looking on Leaping Bunny. Like, none of this is okay. Uh, But I think it's just like an easy way to make a contribution without actually having to do much of anything. Can I give a suggestion? Yes, absolutely. I used to use Myro, which is like a subscription service for deodorant where you get the case the one time and then you get the refill so Mm -hmm. that you're not throwing out plastic and Mm -hmm. they have the Leaping Bunny stamp on them. Love it. And uh, I... I stopped using them because they didn't really work for me. But you said you don't sweat that much. So maybe it would also work. For yeah, people who don't I know some people have like a medical grade sweat amount. And I, I think this is going to be hard for you for for people of that nature. But yeah, like I don't I sweat so little that actually I was con- concerned my body wasn't f- eliminating toxins properly, which knowing me probably correct. Like I always have like some weird ailment that no one's ever heard of before. That's like my MO. But is it Myro M-I or M-Y? M-Y-R-O. And Amazing. they have a lot of like cute scents and packaging. I-, I picked it for the plastic reason. Oh, but- that's um, incredible. And that's, yeah, that's so good too, because then if they're mailing it to you, you don't have to spend so much time like me walking through the aisles of your Dwayne Reed or CVS or whatever, and then walking back to Marshall's and then walking back to Dwayne Reed. And it's a whole thing. But yeah. Um, so thank you. That's a great idea. Myro. Um, and then we're going to go into the adopt don't shop conversation that we had last week. I got so many emails regarding this. If you didn't watch last week's show if you, or if you forgot our discussion, um, I was saying that the one area that I have a really hard time seeing, you know, the gray area or the middle ground on, which is the point of this show without a country, uh, was buying a, a dog from a breeder. Right. And I said, please write me an email saying why I'm wrong about this or why you should be able to buy a dog for a breeder, why breeding should be legal still. I mean, it is, but like why it should be legal, et cetera. And I got some really thoughtful, interesting responses 
And I just want to thank anyone who wrote to me who took the time. They were all very civil. So proud of us. So proud of, of, the, of the space that we have created here, guys. And the first one is from a veterinarian, which I'm so excited about. I'm so excited that a veterinarian listens to the show. That is one of my dream jobs. If I wasn't a comedian, people say, what would you be? I would be a party planner, an astronaut, or a veterinarian. And the second two, I'm not smart enough to be, so it would be a party planner. Um, hi, Corinne. I'm a veterinarian and longtime listener comedy fan. I wanted to say thank you for discussing the negatives of breeding breeders. I have very similar views on that topic, and it's nice to hear it on popular podcasts. It seems to be everyone wants a designer dog they are willing to pay thousands for, but many don't understand that pet care especially medical care, is expensive. I've had many clients decline $100 blood work for their $4,000 Frenchie, and it makes no sense to me. Purebred dogs have tons of medical issues because there is no genetic diversity to dilute the genes that cause things like allergies, joint issues, cancers, etc. A recent study out of UC Davis found all purebred dogs they genetically tested were inbred. And don't even get me started on the animal welfare disaster of smashed-faced pets, um, i.e. bulldogs, pugs, Himalayan cats, etc. I fully support adoption over buying a pet. With that said, I do disagree with you on a few points when it comes to pet relinquishing. I don't think we should vilify people who choose to relinquish their animals when they can no longer care for them. I would rather someone give up their pet to a credible organization such as a city shelter than that animal suffer with substandard care. Many pets get relinquished in an effort to get them needed medical care. Many times these uh, are animals with treatable illnesses, but the cost of care is not in the budget when it's unexpected. Rescues are a great option, but they tend to be very picky in what animals they take and what they turn away, uh, leaving many with the only option being relinquishment to a municipal shelter. Many people would argue if you can't afford vet care, you shouldn't have a pet. But after being in this industry for years, I've come to disagree. I've worked in low and high income areas and I have traveled the world doing veterinary uh, veterinary outreach to impoverished countries. Oh, dreamy. Can I come along with you? I'll just I'll just hold your box for you, your kit. I'll just uh, it'd be like you can be like scalpel and I'll hand it to you, but I'll have to Google what it looks like. One thing I've seen across the board is when you have very little, the love and companionship companionship of an animal uh, is invaluable. And I, I agree with that. And I think I talked a little bit last week about the the vet who I follow on Instagram who um, provides veterinary care for uh, unhoused people's pets. And I think that's amazing. And please call me, sir. You're my dream man. Um, for some, that's their only sense of comfort and understanding they have in their life. The human-animal bond is a special thing. And in my humble opinion, I don't think it should be limited to those who are wealthy. I do agree with that. And also, so many animals need, ho- need houses. So just like – or uh, companions – fucked up because some of them are with unhoused people but that's they need the love or time you know it's fine um working in a rural town i come across many instances where the animal was affordable but when it was healthy but problems arise as the animals age and the only options to ensure the animal doesn't suffer are relinquishment or euthanasia. I've worked with unhoused pet parents who would give up their only meal for the day so their dog could eat, but they can't afford medical care when an emergency happens. Having a pet may be the only positive thing in their life, and I don't think it's fair to judge them for wanting companionship and unconditional love in this harsh world. And I agree, and I mean, 
but but uh, like when I was talking about pet relinquishment, I wasn't specifically talking about unhoused people. I mean, that's a very um, specific uh, group of people. And yes, I agree. It's these. It's better that the animals have a companion and to be hanging out with an um, an unhoused person than locked up in a shelter with no human companionship. Yes, a hundred percent. With all that being said, I appreciate your efforts to bring this more into the public eye. Shelters are struggling, especially in more small town rural areas where resources are limited. I just wanted to bring up some of the nuances I've discovered from working in the vet field. Oh, and don't skip on the pet insurance. Get it while they're young before they develop medical issues. It can literally save a life. I've heard that so much. And like, I just can't find a pet insurance that feels like good to me. Um, and then I did some calculations over time and like the amount of, and I've, Alfred's kind of ex- expensive cause he's high maintenance like me, um, medically. Um, and, uh, so please, if you have a pet insurance that you love recommends it to me, I asked Justin Silver, but like the one that he had didn't, didn't really like work for me anyway, sincerely, Dr. Paris Watkins DMV. Um, and so that made me think a little bit, and I was thinking about this when I got off air last week anyway, it made me think a little bit more like. Yeah, I I certainly don't want to vilify people who think that they are doing the best thing for their pet. I guess my problem with that is like, is simply like, I think of pets as a member of the family, um, as a child, right? Um, I don't like refer to them as my child. I refer to Alfred as my best friend because I think it's weird, but, uh, you're, you're, you are their caretaker. Um, and then I was thinking about like elderly people. And sometimes I guess we do relinquish elderly people, Uh, whether it be to like hospital care or to a nursing home, which is why I am so interested in creating a nursing home for dogs to to as a solution to this exact problem that this veterinarian is talking about, because I recognize that sometimes the pet can't survive uh, because financially they don't have the money to cover the medical uh, costs. And so it would give a direct place for you to relinquish um, a, a sick or senior pet where you can still visit them. So they don't lose that bond and that connection with you. Um, but they still get the care that they need and deserve. Right. Call it Hospop. Very cute. Very cute. I love it. Oh no, JJ Lieberman's entered the building. Okay. Um, and uh, so that's so I, I certainly agree on that. Uh, a lot of people I know when I'm speaking about pet l- relinquishing or stories I hear are basically more stories of them being lazy, right? Behavioral issues coming up, and these are not people with like small children. They're not fucking. They're just like lazy people who didn't realize the amount of work it takes um, to take care of a pet. So yes, I I agree with that. And then again, I was thinking more about like, perhaps maybe my gripe is with veterinary medicine in general. You know, the fact that it's a lot more likely for if you can't pay for an animal to receive health care, they will literally be turned away. Whereas it, with a human, you can like show up in the emergency room. And like, if you can't, I've been to the emergency room a few times like you do have to provide identification and your health insurance when you walk in but like do they deny you service because like I'm a little sometimes they I've heard stories okay so when I worked on Michael Moore's sicko like some of the crazier stories in that documentary were about people actually getting turned away for health care 
but I personally have not experienced that. And like, you know, if you call an ambulance or something, like they just kind of bill you later. Like, right? Like we don't, we don't have a, my question, I guess, is we don't have a service in America. Like, do we have a service where if like an animal is hemorrhaging where they just get the healthcare immediately. I would think if you showed up at a emergency room for an animal that they are just providing that. Yeah. So it's saying, I just looked it up. It says, uh, uh, pace, when patients are unable to afford medical services, those services can be denied by a medical professional. In fact, this is one of the most common reasons why doctors exercise their limited right to refuse treatment. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was like, Again, I have heard horror stories about that from working on sicko specifically. And then um, my name's in the credit you, credits. You can check first first on-screen credit. So proud. But I, uh, yeah, I wonder, because again, I've been to the emergency room with Alfred several times, but uh, so it wasn't this. the kind where he like, you know, it's not, it wasn't like r- rushing on a stretcher kind. It was like provide, fill out a form first kind. You didn't need a doggy ambulance? Well, that's, that that's kind of what I was like really looking into. It's like, my, cause my question is like, yeah, cause I, I wanted to compare uh, emergency veterinarian services with emergency human services. That's what I wanted to look into long form. Okay, so I am seeing here key, key points as federal law requires most U.S. hospitals to treat or stabilize a person with an emergency health concern, even if they can't pay for treatment. Right, because I don't think that same thing exists for, I mean, and I guess it's also specific to like where you're going. I'm sure different um, veterinary hospitals have different protocols, but like I would hope the same my 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 point is and I looked into a little bit but I couldn't just I just couldn't get a clear enough answer. My point is that if that same service is not available for uh animals it should be, right? Where you can get them treatments and then worry about the payment payment later even if that ultimately means that you have to relinquish your pet. Um I would hope that because we would just we would never have a person you know, show up at the emergency room and then the cost is too high and then we euthanize the person. Like, that's not happening. You can put them into hospice where they are not getting any more stay alive care, but like, it's still done in a, in a way that feel, that, that showcases that we care more about human beings than we do about animals, which I guess at the foundation is the concept that I don't agree with. Um, okay. Then, uh, so that was my thoughts on that. Thank you so much for writing this next, um, uh, letter. This is from Katie Klein, but, uh, there was another writer, uh, Shanice who echoed very similar sentiments. I just happened to read Katie's email first. Um, Katie says dog breeding should not be your only source of income. And she's familiar with dog breeding. She's, it's part of her life. (laughs) Um, She does. She's not, she herself is not a breeder though. Individuals who breed dogs to put food on their table are most likely not responsible breeders. Individuals that do not participate in dog sports like AKC uh, confirmation or hunting trials or scent work are not responsible breeders. And AKC was brought up a lot. Um, The whole point of breeding is to better the breed and individual dog. My mom and her breeding partner, would spend, yeah, that's her, her mom was a a breeder, would spend so much money on DNA testing and other testing through the Orthopedic Foundation of Animals, OFA. That was also an organization that was mentioned in many emails. This yearly testing ensures that breeding dogs do not have genetic or con 
congenital uh, abnormalities with their eyes, hearts, elbows, and hips. If a dog doesn't pass this, uh, the dog should not reproduce. The stud fee to breed uh, to a responsibly bred dog is dependent on the breed of dog, but it's usually between three and $5,000. Usually, if you're buying a purebred registered puppy, you have to sign a contract that the puppy needs to be spayed or neutered. If you want to buy a dog for breeding, usually this doubles the price of your puppy and you have very limited breeding rights. I can say this with the most certainty that if you go to an AKC dog show, the dogs that those breeders produce are not the dogs ending up in shelters. Um, so again, I got a couple emails with similar information to this in it. And that to me is like saying like, yes, it is not these responsible breeders that are causing the issue. Um, but it also to me didn't make a huge argument on why those dogs actually need to uh, exist. Like it made me feel more confident in the welfare of the animals, but not didn't really make a strong enough argument to me why other animals should be dying so that these animals could exist and the the overpopulation issue in general. Um, And then we go on to another point that was brought up uh, several times was like dogs with occupations, working dogs, right? So Albon, I don't think that's your name, but it's that that was one of the words in your um, email address. So I'm just using that to refer to you as that. Albon wrote in about duties for dogs. I thought this is a great point. Again, that did cross my mind um, with some occupations for dogs, specifically like service dogs, hunting dogs, sheep, herding, those kinds of things were brought up. And so I researched this. I pretty much was like 99% sure that basically anyone who needs a service dog can train a shelter dog to do those duties. And that is widely covered online. So that's not a reason to breed dogs. Hunting dogs. I mean, I have an inherent problem with needing a hunting dog to begin with because I don't even think hunting should be legal. That's a whole other thing to discuss. I know there's overpopulation there. I don't know that the solution is going out and sending men with guns to um, kill deer. Again, that's I feel like we're on their land. But again, uh, that's uh, that's another conversation. Um, but also if you need a hunting dog, very easy to train a a shelter dog. Many breeds of shelter dogs can do that or mixed breeds. And that was from an actual hunting site, uh, sportdog.com. So that wasn't like someone who has bias towards shelter dogs. I didn't go to a shelter dog website. It was from sportdog.com. And again, it was, uh, uh, reinforced in many other articles, but that was where I went. And then sheep herding, that was the one where I was like, I don't know the answer to this because normally they use border collies. I did see a sheepdog do its sheepdog duties in Ireland and damn, it was cute. Oh, I liked it so much. Um, and sheep herding, um, yes, this one is the, 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 like the biggest argument, I guess, for breeding because not all breeds can do this job, but many can still be trained to do it. And on top of that, if you need a specific breed, you can go to a breed-specific rescue. Like There are many breed-specific, uh, border collie-specific rescues. There's certainly a lot of greyhound uh, rescues, uh, not that they should be doing the same job, but like for, you know, retired racing dogs, if you want a purebred, you can get a purebred greyhound. Enjoy. They're great. Great dogs. Oh, I love greyhounds. They're so cute. Um, and also another, speaking of animal testing, if you want a purebred dog, you can get a purebred beagle um, because beagles are used for animal testing, purebred. So they often need homes um, if they are released. A lot of times after they're tested on, they're euthanized. Um, but that um, those were the points that were made there. So again, I was able to like kind of go against any need for breeding in that argument. 
Um, and then there's another email. This is from uh, Yesenia. Uh, she said, because you mentioned the dog shows, I want to mention that there is a difference in kennel clubs like the AKC that breed for specific physical attributes versus breed associations like ABCA that focus on maintaining the integrity of the breed's working attributes. Uh, my sister, I think you pronounce this Zini, Zenny, uh, works on a sheep farm and owns four border collies. Border collies are extremely important and not any dog can do what they do on the farm, which is true. Not any dog can do it, but other dogs besides purebred border collies can do it. And again, I'm sure it does take more work. And I think a lot of my problem with um, uh, needing breeders is that I think that a lot of the reason that we need breeders is because we as humans are lazy, right? So we're too lazy to do the work to train a shelter dog to do these things that we need dogs to do to help us. And so we're like, you know what it needs your solution is breeding. So that's another problem. Like a lot of our laziness, I feel like has had a really um, terrible effect on um, not just dogs, but animals in general. Um, and let's see, the exception for breeding is for people who own dogs for a specific working function, training dogs to behave versus to work with sheep or, cat or cattle are two completely different worlds. Agreed. These people need dogs to have very specific traits working wise that need to be introduced very young and very rarely can be done through a rescue or a pound. Again, I haven't tried to do it. I'm sure it's hard, but, you know, the genetic line makes huge impact on the dog's drive and ability to do the task. That's why AKC dogs are not able to be registered as working dogs. Because of the focus to breed only a specific look, the actual breed behavioral qualities are diluted and they do not perform well. When people breed working dogs, they are not making income off of it. Breeding isn't their job. The farm is their job. The dogs are bred to have another upcoming working dog, and they usually only breed every three to five years, producing maybe two to four pups at a time. So very low. When they are sold, they are only sold to well-vetted uh, people they know or known in the herding or farming community. So this is like the best argument I'm getting so far. And they, again, it's not producing very many dogs, so it wouldn't be contributing to the um, – uh, overpopulation problem. And she also included an amazing book recommendation if you're interested in reading up more about this. It's called The Dog Wars, How the Border Collie Battled the American Kennel Club by Donald McCaig. And then the last article that um, or email that I thought was interesting um, is someone who's might I changed a little bit, but does themselves have a purebred dog. Hi, Corinne. I've listened to you share your thoughts on adopting animals for years, and I appreciate your hard stance and unwavering commitment. You have pushed my thinking and made the truth unavoidable without being insufferable. And that was my goal. So I appreciate you noticing that. As someone who bought my dog 10 years ago, I've had to live with a certain amount of cognitive dissonance every time. I hear anyone make a case for adopting pets. And please, I don't want I don't want anyone to be like sad that they have a pure, love your purebred. Um, and every time I see a post about shelter animals and euthanization, it's impossible to deny, to deny that by buying my dog, I didn't make space for another animal. A dog was euthanized so I could have my cute, non-shedding, picture-perfect little angel purebred dog. Don't worry. We do the same every time we have kids and people aren't going to stop having kids. So just you're, you're fine. <laughs> I don't want you to feel bad. I just want people to be like more, I guess, conscientious about it, you know? So how can I live with myself? What can I do to make up for it? Or what can I do going forward? I'll start by saying this. I will likely make the same choice again. However, next time I will save up until I can make a donation equal to what I am paying for my dog. 
which I think is a really cool idea. And again, obviously, this is is if you are in a financial place to do so. But if you're in a financial place to hock up a a couple thousand dollars for a purebred, you probably should be in a financial place to hock up the money to make the donation. Otherwise, you're just making a bad financial decision, which, I mean, it's your money. You can make a bad financial decision. But that goes then back to the the veterinarian's um, email above about people buying a $4,000 Frenchie and then being like, I don't need $100 of blood work that you definitely do need. Uh, If I can afford to spend $2,000 on a dog, I can afford to match that in a donation to a local shelter or inspired by last week's article to support legislation that holds breeders more accountable. If backyard breeders or breeders in general were regulated to the point that they were having to support homeless animals, they would likely pass that cost on to their customers. Let's make people pay double for their bred dogs, starting with me. This is my way of reconciling a choice I have made that doesn't align with what I believe to be morally right. And I think we all do that. I think like recognizing that sometimes the way we feel, you know, like I said, like sometimes I eat a chicken nugget and like that goes against what I believe is morally right. And sometimes I just make decision the decision that my want at the time to eat a chicken nugget is more than in the moment my thoughts on that that chicken shouldn't have been killed to begin with. Like, right. And I think that's like recognizing that. And not being so black and white about everything is just like what it means to be a human on the earth. (laughs) It makes it closer to right in my head and perhaps it heals the world a little bit. People are going to keep buying dogs, so let's pressure them into paying and providing receipts, especially rich people, celebrities, people with platforms. Thank you for reading this. Well, I don't expect or want to change your mind. Um, And then she puts your obviously right in parentheses. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if this could be a third way that invites more people to the cause like the meatless Mondays of veganism. Sincerely, Summer. And I love that. I love that she actually brought up meatless Mondays, too, because, again, like I I don't think that we're going to ever be able to like there's not gonna you're not you can't put a switch on and make everyone stop eating hamburgers. I think it's just like just number one, knowing the impact of your choices is and then you can make an informed decision either way. I think that's like super important. And then just like if we all cut back a little bit on things that like when you boil the information down, like, you know, what's what's the better choice morally and what's the less better choice morally. And it doesn't have to be so all or nothing. You can do it like if we all did a meatless Monday, do you know how many animals would be still be alive at the end of the year? Like, a crazy amount and also extremely good for the environment. That was another article that popped up this week that we didn't have time for, but just like how hot the earth is getting and how like 30% of that is because we fucking love eating meat so much. And then of course there was a picture and it wasn't even in uh, a, on a website that would try to make you go vegan, but just like the way that cows were all like in metal things in a circle, it was fucking horrific. It was just not good. Um, There's a really long article. I'll read a piece of it from theintercept.com about specifically uh, beagles that are bred to suffer that I wanted to kind of end this portion on um, purebred dogs with. Um, Because I I think when we talk about animal testing, uh, people don't realize, and again, I've mentioned it several times, but like dogs are still heavily tested on. And a lot of people still think it's like they're spraying perfume on a dog and then letting the dog back out. Like, no, most often these dogs know nothing but a laboratory for their whole life and they are then euthanized after. So like we can tell ourselves the stories that we want to tell ourselves in our head, but like 
that's the reality of it. Sometimes you can adopt a beagle out of animal testing, but you know, like my uh, friend on Instagram, but you know, a lot of times they're euthanized too. And they're doing it on primates, skinny pigs, rabbits. Mm. All right. And this is from 2018. But again, it just I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, this says there is a largely uh, hidden, poorly regulated and a highly profitable industry in the United States that has a gruesome function, breeding dogs for the sole purpose of often torturous experimentation, after which the dogs are killed because they are no longer of use. Americans frequently... <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Michael's really tickled with himself. I, I, I like that all my cuties corners are the most horrific stories. Uh, Americans frequently express horror at festivals in countries such as China and South Korea where dogs are killed, cooked, and eaten. Mainstream media outlets in the U.S. routinely report with a tone of disgust on the use of dogs in those countries for food consumption. Um it's not okay. So I want to hop in and say, like, I am really against those festivals, but that's not just because they're eating the dogs. And, like, I do agree that, like, if you're eating any animal, like, the animals should be treated the same. We just have dogs on a higher level because of our relationship with dogs as humans. But, um, yeah, overall, I don't think it's any worse to eat a dog than it is to eat a cow, right? I, I, or a pig. I agree with that. My problem with these uh, festivals is not that the animals are eaten. That's just as bad as eating other animals. It's that the animals are tortured like veal before they were eaten, right? Like I saw, When I found out how veal was made, I don't know, when I was like fucking eight, I stopped eating veal. That's the problem with it. So like the dogs, because it makes them taste better um, without like all the muscle, they're, they're kept in these like really thin, basically the size of their body cages many times for those festivals. The same as uh, when cows aren't allowed to move so they can be made into veal. That's my specific problem with these festivals. Because I do um, agree that it's like a cultural difference, like what animals we eat. And sometimes people will, oh, that's such a horrific photo. Um, And sometimes people will bring that up as kind of like, you know, like xenophobic, basically. But I want to specify that because this article is a little... It's a little left. Um, But in the U.S. itself, corporations and academic institutions exploit dogs as well as cats and rabbits for excruciating experiments that are completely trivial, even useless, and are just as abusive as the practices in Asia that have produced so much moral indignation in the West. These dogs are frequently bred into life for the sole purpose of being laboratory objects. That is so bad. And and there's, you know, many animals are also never see the outside of like a meat plant and are literally are are born just for us to eat and will die knowing nothing but the inside of a building. So also that um, and spend their time often short existence locked in a small cage subjected to procedures that impose extreme pain and suffering. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's aptly named the Animal Usage Report. Isn't that crazy? I didn't even know such a report existed until today. The Animal Usage Report. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, good name for a podcast or an improv team. 6,979 dogs were used in the U.S. for experimentation in 2016 alone. The reported number of all animals used for experimentation 
whose reporting was required, was 820,812. Uh, often the experimentation has nothing to do with medical research, but rather trivial commercial interests. And in almost all cases, dogs provide little to no unique scientific value. This chart, compiled by Speaking of Research, used using USDA data, reflects the total number of animals used for experimentation in 2016, an increase of 6.9% as compared to the prior year. And it's not it's not a great number. We don't love it. Seventy one thousand one hundred and eighty eight of what they call non-human primates. That's an interesting um, thought on evolution right there, too. Dogs bred into life for use or sale as experimentation objects have all the same emotional complexity, sensations of suffering and deprivation and inbred need for human companionship as household dogs, which are loved as pets and members of the family. Yet the legalized cruelty and torture to which man's best friend is subjected for profit in the U.S. is virtually limitless. In fact, the majority of dogs bred and sold for experimentation are beagles, and I know you're thinking why. It's because they're considered ideal because of their docile, human-trusting personality. So we said they trust us the most, and we're going to breach that trust. Um, in other words, the very traits that have made them such loyal and loving companions to humans are the ones that humans exploit to best manipulate them in labs. Even when legal standards are adhered to, and they often are not, the permitted abuse to which these dogs are subjected is horrifying. They are often purposely starved or put into a state of severe thirst to induce behavior they would otherwise not engage in. They are frequently bred deliberately to have crippling, excruciating diseases or sometimes are brought into life just to have their organs, eyes, and other body parts removed and studied as puppies and then quickly killed. They are force-fed laundry detergents, pesticides, and industrial chemicals to the point of continuous vomiting and death. They are injected with lethal pathogens such as salmonella or rabies. They have artificial sweetener injected into their veins that causes the dog's testicles to shrink before they are killed. And um, and oh, I've seen this word before, but I don't know how to say it and we're not asking Michael. Sorry. Someone offered to like, uh, how do you fucking say this word? Give me elocution lessons? No, no, no. Exsanguinate. And exsanguinate. Okay. Drained. Again, this is like a, you would, we're, we're, I wouldn't know really use that word unless I'm a serial killer. Because if someone said, I ensanguinated the bathtub, I would kill them. No, it specifically means a person or an animal of blood. So really, you're like, unless you're in the medical profession or um, uh, a serial killer, you're not using exsanguinated. So I feel better um, that I didn't uh, know how to say that one. Uh, they are killed or exsanguinated. Holes are drilled into their skulls so that viruses can be injected into their brains. And all of that is perfectly legal. Um, so I just wanted to go into that. The rest of that is kind of like a lot of stories about, uh, the thing. And I don't want to go on and on because again, I don't want to like make people feel guilty. That's not my point. I don't like, I don't love like the, the PETA tactic of just showing you the most horrific thing that's ever happened, um, in an, a lab to an animal and being like, this is happening every day to every animal. Right. But I just want to like, I feel like a lot of times, you know, we we do do ignorance is bliss with animal testing. And so many intelligent people that I know just really think animal testing is putting perfume in a bunny's eye and don't realize that it's actual animal torture. So again, that's why like, I always start with animal testing. That's the first one that can go. It's not, it, it really is not going to affect your life and it will help so many 
other uh, people in the world. A monkey doing you know what with a football. It'll help that monkey. Okay. Um, all right. So enough about that. Uh, we have made it to girl. And we'll talk about humans now. Right. Girl. And after you read about the humans, you're like, yeah, I can see why Corinne likes animals so much. Right. All right. So we all heard Liz McGill uh, resigned from UPenn. She's only been there for like two years. What happened there? I wasn't even familiar with why she um resigned or what she said until I got heard all these things that she resigned. So this is from CNN and it says the four key events that led to UPenn president Liz McGill's resignation. Normally I wouldn't care about like what's happening on one singular college campus, but I think it really things usually like the most intense things start on college campus campuses before they start infiltrating into the rest of the world. And also the students who are, learning things of college age will are going to grow up and become the people who are going into politics and into medicine and making decisions about our lives as we age. So I think it actually is pretty important, the decisions meeting, uh, being made on college campuses. Uh, when Liz McGill was hired to be the 27th leader of the nearly 300-year-old University of Pennsylvania 20 months ago, she was academic royalty. On Saturday, she resigned in disgrace. Born into a family of lawyers and judges, McGill has spent decades rising to the top ranks of academia. Penn had high hopes for McGill. She had served as the provost of the University of Virginia, where she had previously attended law school. She joined the law school faculty there immediately after serving as a clerk to former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Before her time as provost at UVA, she served as dean at Stanford Law. Her gold-plated resume got her the job, but it didn't serve her with the skills she needed to navigate one of the most serious crises on campus in recent memory. Here are the key moments that led to McGill's resignation. Key moment number one, Palestine Rights Literary Festival. McGill's tenure began its end in September. The Palestine Rights Literature Festival took place September 22nd through September 24th on campus, and it was controversial before it even started. The festival celebrating Palestinian culture was not a student-led event, though students from UPenn and around the Philadelphia area were involved in organizing and volunteering. McGill and Penn's leadership faced an enormous backlash from high-profile donors and the Anti-Defamation League about the guest list. Critics said the invited speakers had a history of making anti-Semitic statements, a characterization the university's administration acknowledged, but organizers and attendees rejected. The festival was not organized by the university, although the university issued a statement prior to the festival condemning anti-Semitism. It maintained it had a responsibility to uphold the free exchange of ideas on its campus. Which I agree with, right? Like, please find me someone who's never made a derogatory statement about a culture, a sex, a gender, a social, you know, a religion, because you're not you're going to come up with no one. And um, I agree anti-Semitism is a problem, but like to find anyone with a completely clean slate who's never said anything about any group, let's count, let's all count ourselves out, okay? And be honest with yourself. Include the things that you say in the privacy of your home, you fucking hypocrites. Um, donors remained furious. Uh, what weeks later, their simmering animosity toward McGill and the administration turned to a boil. Key moment number two, Hamas's attack. Hamas killed a bunch of Israelis and they also got Liz McGill kicked out of UPenn. 
Um, and I'm sure some people think the Liz McGill thing was worse because we live in a crazy society. Following Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, donors lashed out at McGill and Penn's leadership. One after another, big-pocketed donors turned their back on McGill, demanding her resignation. Among the first to call on McGill to resign was Mark Rowan, CEO of private equity giant Apollo Global Management. Rowan, one of the university's wealthiest donors, called on other financial supporters to refuse to give to the university. Rowan argued at the time that he opposed McGill not because Penn hosted the festival, but because she failed to forcefully condemn it. Penn's leaders said on October 12th that they were devastated by the horrific assault on Israel by Hamas. These abhorrent attacks have resulted in the tragic loss of life and escalating violence and unrest in the region, McGill and Provost John Jackson Jr. said in that statement. In damage control mode, McGill further distanced Penn from the festival and said she and the university should have more quickly condemned the speaker's views. I mean, these two first instances to me just seem like really unfortunate timing, right? Like right before Hamas attacked Israel, you do this big Palestinian literary event that a lot of people had problems with the people who were on the speaker list to begin with. That just seems like unfortunate coincidence. McGill on October 15th said in another statement, she knows uh, how painful the presence of these speakers on campus was for the Jewish community. Uh, I mean, the, the story for college campuses in today's um, age is basically anyone who shares a view that is different from mine. I mean, I don't think anyone's view should be, I don't like Jews, but, eh, you know, it happens. Um, and I would also like to see specifically what the anti-Semitic marks that these speakers said, like, because were they anti-Semitic? Were they anti-Zionist? Like, again, I'm open to it. So, certainly, as we know, lots of anti-Semitic things are said um, every day, you know? The university <clears throat> did not and emphatically does not uh, endorse these speakers or their views. And I think that's fine to say, like, listen, like we're going to have people speaking and like this is not the viewpoint of the university, but these are prominent people in our culture who have made a name for themselves. So obviously, like some of their views are respected and they're going to have a conversation and then you can use your critical thinking skills that you're hopefully you have learned previously to get you into UPenn and are continuing to hone at UPenn and make a fucking decision for yourself. Right. I mean, otherwise, you're just susceptible to starting to entering a cult anyway. If you just show up at talks and everything a person says because they're in a suit and has a microphone, you're like, oh, that must be the right thing to to think. Like and that includes not just uh, people in politics or, you know, on college campuses. That includes uh, people in clergy that your pastor, whatever. When I was a little kid and I and I still uh, when I was going to like at the time as like a Methodist church. Right. I remember being like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old sitting and listening to the sermon and going, this guy's giving some crazy ideas out today, right? Like you have to start honing your critical thinking immediately, immediately. Um, But donors viewed McGill's comments as too little too late. Former U.S. Ambassador John Huntsman and other high-profile UPenn donors soon after vowed to close their checkbooks in protest. Billionaire Ronald Lauder, another powerful financial backer of school, uh, threatened to do the same if more wasn't done to fight anti-Semitism. I would like to know what their thoughts are. Like, how are we fighting anti-Semitism, right? Because I so often think when you try to fight these ideas— we often fail in actually like making people think differently. We just uh, 
let people know that it won't be tolerated publicly and then it goes to private spaces. And that's my problem with a lot of the way that we do things in America. Because I don't think it goes away. I think it just hides. And then when someone like Trump uh, becomes president, it all comes out even stronger because um, it was because it was forced to be repressed for so long. So more to me, it's more like, how do we actually like change people's views? And I, I, I don't think it's by saying you can't come here and talk. I think it's about having an open space where we can have conversations such as this podcast. But I mean, you know, is anyone who's still around without without a country after this long? And there's been so many new subscribers in the past year, especially, and so many more people have been talking to me about this show uh, recently. So, like, I really appreciate you being here because I know you certainly don't need to dedicate the time to uh, have civil discussions, and many people aren't. So, give yourself a little pat on the back, right? Uh, key moment number three: rising anti-Semitism on campus as tensions simmered over Hamas's attack and Israel's ensuring war in Gaza. Uh, anti-Semitic incidents surged at Penn and on college campuses across the country. In late October, McGill issued another statement to try to calm nerves on campus. I categorically, you know someone's serious when they start with categorically, condemn hateful speech that denigrates others as contrary to our values, McGill said. I mean, when people make statements like this, I just envision a hand on a dick just jerking itself off because this is all meaningless. All these statements, if you're making a statement, unless you're Martin Luther King Jr., fucking statements mean nothing. It means nothing. In this tragic moment, we must respect the pain of our classmates and colleagues and recognize that our speech and actions have the power to both harm and heal our community. We must choose healing, resisting those who would divide us and instead respect and care for one another. McGill announced an action plan on November 1st designed to fight anti-Semitism at UPenn. But later that week, the University of Pennsylvania police and the FBI jointly investigated a series of threatening anti-Semitic emails sent to university staff. Anti-Semitic messages were also written on buildings. In an email to the university community, McGill said she learned that some... Can you imagine like there's a swastika on... On your on your fucking dorm room and you get an email that's like I categorically condemn that swastika you're doing nothing in an email to the university community McGill said she learned that some Penn staff members received vile disturbing anti-semitic emails threatening violence against members of our Jewish community specifically naming Penn Hillel and Lauder College House McGill said the messages targeted the personal identities of the recipients. On no- As a good threat does, bitch. On November 10th, the Brandeis Center, a Jewish civil rights legal organization, filed civil rights complaints with the U.S. Department of Education, accusing Penn of nurturing a hostile environment toward Jewish students and failing to adequately respond to harassment of Jews. Penn has allowed its campus to become a hostile environment for its Jewish students as well as a magnet for anti-Semites. The Brandeis complaint said, referring to the larger community surrounding the university. Philadelphia. Uh, In late November, the House of Committee on Education and the Workforce invited McGill, along with the presidents of MIT and Harvard, to testify about rising anti-Semitism on campus. And key moment number four, testimony on the Hill. McGill and the other presidents testified on December 5th and faced intense criticism for their answers to questions from New York Republican Representative Elise Stefanik about whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated their respective school's code of conduct on bullying or harassment. I don't know. It's hard for me to believe that she called for the genocide of Jews. 
That's hard for me to believe, but okay. None of the school leaders explicitly said that calling for the genocide of Jews would necessarily violate their code of conduct. Instead, they explained it would depend on the circumstances and conduct. The outcry was swift and widespread. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro called McGill's statements unacceptable and shameful, and he called for the UPenn Board of Trustees to meet and discuss whether McGill's testimony represents the values of the university and board. McGill, in Wednesday, attempted to clarify her comments. Though she did not apologize, she said she should have focused on the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. Critics were unmoved. Stone Ridge Holdings CEO Ross Stevens, a major donor to uh, Penn, sent a letter on Thursday to Penn threatening to take steps that would cost the Ivy League school approximately $100 million if McGill stays on as president. The Wharton Board of Advisors, comprised of a powerful group of business leaders, called for McGill's immediate ouster. Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, said McGill's attempt to clean up her testimony looked like a hostage video, like she was speaking under duress and called on her to resign. That's how everyone's apology video fucking looks. A bipartisan group, remember uh, Ashton and Mila? That was a hostage video if ever I saw one. A bipartisan group of more than 70 members of Congress on Friday sent a letter to board members of Harvard, MIT, and Penn demanding McGill and her counterparts at the other two universities be dismissed. Yeah, there was a whole thing at Harvard too. I don't even want to get into it because I think the Liz McGill thing was more important than and the uh, Harvard hates Jews banners that Jews paid for. But it was a whole thing um, uh, with a Palestinian flag, flag that Jews paid for. Uh, the board held an emergency gathering Thursday, but McGill remained president at its conclusion. But she didn't last much longer. McGill and board chair Scott Bach resigned Saturday evening. All right. So I think that's uh, important to know. Um and this is just a little blip to kind of compliment uh, Israel-Palestine, which we'll get into with one more article a little bit later in the show. Um, but Sam Harris um, I don't, makes some good points. I don't know. A friend of mine, uh, I, I follow Sam Harris, but like loosely, but a friend of mine whose opinion I respect uh, kind of said that he was interested to see Sam Harris's thoughts on Israel-Palestine when everything first went down because he always, you know, tends to do a good job of staying quiet on things until he has a full understanding of them. And I, I just came across his Instagram uh, clip today and it was basically talking about how we can play the clip. It's super short. But, um, you know, the difference between like Palestinian people and, um, you know, uh, Islam as a whole, I, su- I suppose, and how and how saying that uh, well, you'll see for yourself. I don't need to explain it. He explains it. We have people who are ostensibly committed to women's rights and gay rights and trans rights, mindlessly supporting people who would hurl them from rooftops or beat them to death with their own hands. It's not a sign of bigotry to notice this hypocrisy and moral confusion for what they are. It really is possible to be critical of Israel and to be committed to the rights of the Palestinian people without denying the reality of Islamic religious fanaticism. We have people who are ostensibly okay, committed so that's, to women's rights. It's just looping now. But yeah, so the, the title of that was The, the Left's uh, his, Hypocrisy on Israel. Is that the title of the clip? Um, yeah. And uh, I thought that was interesting because 
that's kind of what we uncovered when we read a couple weeks ago Osama bin Laden's letter to America, right? And that's why I knew looking into it, I would find homophobia and I would find misogyny and I would find sexism and I would find all these terrible uh, things in it in this letter, even if he made some other you know, good points. And again, why I think that like, why I think that if speakers made anti-Semitic remarks that perhaps they should still be allowed to speak on a a campus because they might have other good views. And just keep in mind in the back of your head as a critical thinker, which I hope you are, if you're in college, especially at UPenn, that yes, this person has said that, that a hundred percent of nothing, of nothing that anyone says is correct. Um, You know, even if you go by the Bible, remember that, you know, there's, they're fucking pushing wheelchairs off cliffs in the Bible, okay? So even even God's word isn't 100% accurate if you believe in all that. But um, uh, I, I thought that was a really, again, interesting, succinct point that he's saying, like, we have to, as people on the left, we, 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 we pat ourselves on the back for being so, so fucking progressive. And I'm not even including myself in this group anymore. You know, I'm a liberal gone rogue. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we're so um, invested now in being, you know, a, a person in America who's saying free Palestine that we're overlooking all these terrible things um, that uh, many people uh, who are part of Islam condone, such as, you know, you know, you know throwing gay people off roof- rooftops like he wasn't even being. that's like a real thing that wasn't hyperbolic I guess would be the word like it wasn't he was literally that's really happens (laughs) so and that's a a problem that I've seen too just like this overlooking of all the other terrible things um certain religions condone and this goes for all religions not you know I mean I'm very critical of all religions extreme extreme Judaism Catholicism all all of them um so I thought that was like a, a, a great clip uh to share the hypocrisy of liberals in Israel uh, and Palestine predicament, which predicament is way too uh, small of a word for what's happening over there. All right, let's move on to the presidential election of 2024 for a beat. I don't want to lose sight of that uh, because I think, again, with our activism ADHD, which I'm going to keep saying because it pissed so many people off, but then so many people loved it. Mm. All right. How should the media cover Trump and Biden in 2024. One man has an answer. This is a piece from uh, NPR. NPR always, again, I, I, I urge you to check out their website every week because they always pick some really interesting stories and, and discuss some things that just other news outlets don't. And um, I really like that. Like, they, they, it seems like they're really open to conversation instead of just clickbait on NPR. Uh, we journalists lament that we used the term uncharted waters so often in recent years to describe the state of American politics that the term has almost ceased to register. But what else can we call this? What words feel adequate to the challenge of reporting on what is shaping up to be yet another presidential election year of, yes, uncharted waters covering a Republican frontrunner who may well spend more time in court than on the campaign trail in these coming months? How do we cover it? What have we learned from covering the elections of 2016 and 2020? How can we do better? How do we earn back public trust? And I think this goes into our conversation too. Um, 
that I we had about ethics and journalism a couple weeks ago. Uh, we put these questions to a man who ran the newsrooms uh, of the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe and then took over the Washington Post in 2013 and steered that newsroom through Donald Trump's presidency. Martin Barron wrote about it all in his recent memoir, Collision of Power, and spoke to All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly about what the media got right and wrong in recent years and what keeps him awake at night. This uh, uh, interview has been lightly edited for length and clarity. I don't love reading interviews on here, um, but I just think this specifically was pretty interesting and works um, in alignment with what we talk about on this show. Interview highlights. Mary Louise Kelly says there's so much discussion these days, as you know, over whether democracy is on the line in next year's election. Do you believe it is? Martin Barron. Yes, I absolutely do believe it is. All you have to do is listen to what Donald Trump has been talking about, what he says he's going to do in another administration. He's the only politician I've heard actually talk about suspending the Constitution. (laughs) Of course he was. Nobody can (laughs) suspend the Constitution better than me. He's talked about using the military to suppress entirely legitimate protests using their Insurrection Act. He's talked about bringing treason charges against the then outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's talked about bringing treason charges against Comcast, the owner of NBC and MSNBC. He's talked explicitly about weaponizing the government against his political enemies. And of course, he continues to talk about crushing an independent press. So all of those by nature, by definition, are authoritarian in nature. Kelly says, so let's uh, turn to our role as longstanding members of an independent press. If one believes, as I gather you do, that good journalism is an act of patriotism, what does that look like these days? Barron responds, well, I think we have to be clear about what a second Trump administration would look like. And, you know, guys, just as a reminder, a sitting president, they play it safe in one. So if that if we saw Trump playing it it safe, imagine what Trump going ham looks like, because that's term two. We also have to look at what a second Biden administration would look like. A lot of people would argue a coffin and see what his plans are. But with regard to Trump, he's being very explicit about what he intends to do when he's uh, when he's talking about. And then Kelly says, so we report on what he intends to do. That's the point of and then Barron interjects. Well, not just what he says, but talking to his team and the plans that they're making for the policies they intend to implement as soon as he moves into the White House, if that turns out to be the case. Kelly then says, so let me put to you a couple of the arguments which you anticipate and write about in your memoir. One is that we can do the greatest reporting in the world, but it does not matter if people, including Trump voters, are not reading or listening to media outlets like The Washington Post or like NPR if we're not reaching people, which is why I fully want I told my manager that I want a show on Fox and I'm 100 percent serious about that. And if anyone works at Fox, Hire me. I think I'm a great choice. Uh, Then Barron says, yeah, well, it's true media consumption uh, is highly polarized. The real challenge is how do we reach a broader audience, as you say? I think there are a number of things that we can do. I don't think that it's the case that our work doesn't resonate at all. I think it does resonate with the independent thinkers out there. That might not be a huge portion of the population. It's not, but it's a significant portion of the population, hopefully getting bigger. But I think we need to cover the totality of American society. We need to reflect people's lives, their concerns. And then on the more highly charged topics, we need to lay out the evidence. We need to point 
if we're talking about a court document, we need to show that court document. We need to annotate it so that people can see exactly where we got that information, point to a, vi- a video, point to a data set, point to audio, whatever it might be. And this was really brought to life with me this week with something that happened on Guys We Fucked, right? Because there was this opinion piece in, I believe it was the, the New York Times, about uh, why less people are getting married. Because many people are blaming modern feminism and like the masculine, uh, the new masculine woman for the reason <clears throat> that women aren't getting married. But the the point of the essay was that that's not necessarily true. It's that women are having a really negative experience in the dating world and that women, even thus fucking masculine women, many of us do want to get married, right? Um, I'm still on the fence. But uh uh, and and it, it pointed out some studies, including uh, a creative writing project from a high school class in which specifically uh, the boys, the, the, the creative essay uh, writing prompt was to spend a day in the shoes of the opposite sex and write an essay about that. And the gals turned in these really well thought about uh, thought out long papers. And many of the male students refused to do the assignment or, quote, did so resentfully. Right. And so we talked to, we we read that article uh, in its uh, totality on guys we fucked. But then I clipped it up for the specifically to share that creative writing story, because um, that was the part of the article that uh, bothered me the most. And I feel like already like more people have seen that clip than read the, the full the full essay. And that's what we talk about when we talk about like we need to get these concepts you know, for people who aren't reading the New York Times or aren't reading the Washington Post in uh, to them. And that's where I think social media really helps, right? But where it hurts is what we saw on TikTok with Osama bin Laden's letter to America circulating just in pieces, right? Because I... I cut up an article, but I didn't change the meaning of the article when I cut it up. And I think that really happens when we only digest things in pieces, in clips. And so if you're clipping something up, please make sure it um, is true to the integrity and the meaning of the piece that you originally took it from. Um, don't just excerpt it to back up your thoughts. And I really tried hard to do that, even in the Guys We Fuck book, right? Like I read, I, I really tried to not just like take an excerpt that backed up my opinion. And if my opinion didn't um, line up with the data, I I said that. I said, this is how I wish things were, but this is how the data shows things are, uh, actually are, right? That was having to do with sex work. Um, make the, uh, Back to the interview. Make the assumption that people won't believe a word we say and then say, okay, here's the evidence in the same way that a trial lawyer would present the evidence before a jury and a court. Um, and I love that. I love that the press is being forced to not just say this is what happened, what's happening, to show you, to to not just put a link to that court document and go read it yourself because no one's reading a full court document themselves. Those things are long as fuck, right? We're going to say we took out the pieces of this court document uh, while maintaining the integrity of the court document, but here succinctly is what this court document states. And I think that's important. You should have to prove yourself if you're in the press. Uh Kelly, I guess everything you're telling me sounds utterly reasonable. It also sounds not worlds away from what you might have told me 10 or 20 years ago if I were asking you how to cover a presidential election. Isn't enough these days to lay out the evidence to report facts if people don't believe them? Barron says, and I think, again, not enough people know that like mainstream press is held to certain ethical standards, which we I think we have really shown on the on this show, right? Just, you know, People 
can say till they're blue in the face that uh, the New York Times is fake news or, or Fox is fake news or even Breitbart going that far right is fake news. And in reality, it's not fake news. It's more like what they are choosing to lean into. Right. And, and, and making things that are maybe a small piece of the story seem like a bigger piece of the story. Then Barron says, well, as I said, I do think that there's a portion of the population that is open to evidence. I think we'll never reach the point where everybody is going to trust what we do, but we can certainly reach a majority of the population and have them trust us. And let's look at incremental improvement. And I think that's what we ought to be focusing on. Kelly says, so I know you're out now. You're happily retired. If you were back at the helm at the Washington Post today, uh, would you be telling editors, telling reporters to approach this next election in any way differently than 2020. Barron says, well, I'm happy with what we did in 2020 in terms of how we covered the election, both in 2020 and 2016. And I would approach it very much in the same way, at least at the post. I do think there's some things that the media in general could change. I certainly don't think that CNN and Fox should do what they did in 2016, which was airing Trump's rallies from beginning to end without any interruption without acting as an intermediary whatsoever and letting him say whatever he wanted, many of them completely, entirely falsehoods. You know, and it, it should be like the internet where like the little pop-up things say like, hey, here's a link to some clarity on this misinformation you're receiving right now because this is highly untrue. Uh, and so I don't think that was helpful and it was practically a campaign gift to Donald Trump. So that kind of media behavior I don't think is appropriate and certainly should not be repeated. Kelly says, you describe in this book, lying awake at night, not able to sleep. In this instance, you're agonizing over whether and what to publish about documents to do with National Security Agency surveillance documents that Edward Snowden had leaked. And you wrote about spending the night reading about the Espionage Act of 1917 and looking at provisions that spell out prison terms. I want to know what should be keeping newsroom editors awake tonight, December 2023. Barron says, I would worry about particularly the impact of Generative artificial intelligence, the idea that fake images, fake visuals of all types, and this, oh my God, this is this is a huge problem. He's right. The amount of times I've seen a fake graph and then found, you know, looked at a fake graph as if it was actual data and then um, later uh, looked into articles finding that it was not like you have to be so careful with your what with what you're intaking, even as you're kind of you, like we think we say mindlessly scrolling, but you're not mindlessly scrolling. You're still taking that information in. And I don't expect you to fact check everything that's um an impossibility but like before you share it you should just because something looks like a a nicely put together graph by a graphic designer remember liars can be graphic designers too and often they are you know um so the idea that fake images fake visuals of all types whether it be photographs or videos fake audios will be circulating rapidly They'll be disseminated across the entire country, across the world, and it will be very difficult for the media to catch up to that. We've even seen that with Israel and Palestine a lot. So many times I'm fact-checking, is this a real picture if from, from current times? What is this? Is this an old war photograph? Is this completely AI-generated? Like, what is this, you know? We are completely unprepared for that. People are going to believe those videos and those fake images and those fake audios, and we are not in a position as a profession to counteract that with the speed that we really need. And I think we're seeing that... <clears throat> 
large scale for the first time in the past few presidential elections because we because technology has advanced so much right like a fake photograph on like that looks so realistic couldn't have uh, existed several elections ago um but and we so many adults now grew up in um a time where if we saw something on video or a photograph well that proves it is true and we don't live in those times anymore and it's really important that our minds catch up to the reality of technology and our critical thinking um, and so uh, that is what worries me. And I suspect that toward the end of this campaign, we'll see a lot of that stuff and it uh, will affect people's votes. And we in the profession won't have the capacity to deal with it. Kelly says, last thing, as you and I speak, it seems major news outlet after major news outlet has been publishing op-eds or analysis pieces warning about the risks and dangers of a possible second Trump presidency. My question to you, Marty Barron, is that a good idea, given a lot of people do not distinguish between reporters on the news pages and editorials and the editorial page? Um, and that's also why I always try to point out to you guys if I'm reading an article or if I'm reading an opinion piece. Um, Baron, well, I think in all possible ways, we need to explain what a second Trump administration would look like. I think that is the task of people on the opinion pages. I think that's the task of reporters as well. And I think that it's an obligation of, Kelly interrupts and says, but does it reinforce the view that Trump loves to put out there, that America media is against him, that it's a witch hunt? Barron says, maybe it does. I don't think we have an alternative except to tell the American public what it might be in for, what it's likely in uh, to be in for if Trump were to be reelected. Um and uh, that is the end of that edited interview. Uh, let's see. Well, I have to be off air by what? 7.55? Is that? Yes? Okay. Um, all right. Then I am going to move ahead to the only other things I was going to cover is I had one more article on Israel and Palestine. It's honestly just a tiny little update. It's really a little thing from the Washington Post. It says Biden says Israel is losing support worldwide over indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. President Biden offered sharp criticism of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government Tuesday, calling for a change to the approach embraced by Israel's leadership, which Biden described as the most conservative in Israel's history. The president said Israel was beginning to lose support around the world due to indiscriminate bombing in remarks made during a fundraiser in Washington and urged Israel to seek a long-term solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He added that he warned Netanyahu about repeating mistakes made by the U.S. after 9-11 Oh, what what a beautiful thing. Using history as a fucking learning tool. Wow. You know what? Good for you, Biden. Someone needed to do it at some point in history while reiterating his support for Israel's mission to take on Hamas. Um, the key updates says uh, Israel strikes Rafah in South Gaza, surrounds hospital and demolishes U.S. Uh, U.N. run school in the north. Vast majority of U.N. Uh, General Assembly votes to demand ceasefire in Gaza. Biden says Netanyahu must change his approach, just as a little summary. Um, so that's basically all we need to know for that. I wanted to choose a really short one because I'm, I'm sure most of you are pretty updated on that. And it is changing so swiftly. Um the only other thing I don't think we'll have time to cover this week is this was like a funny thing I picked, picked up from Slate.com, uh, but it was Panera's Lemonade That Kills You is really a story about our broken country if you want to read that one on your own. But also don't drink that lemonade, okay, guys? Like two people have already died for it, died from it. I know caffeine is something that we just like consume without really thinking about it, but like it is still a drug and you can fucking cause yourself like huge, like 
huge medical issues, including death, by consuming too much caffeine. And this is me who bought new, new Kim Kardashian's new uh, caffeine drink that has 200 milligrams of caffeine. And my best friend who, you know, will put lots of things in consume lots of things. He was like, 200 milligrams, Corinne, that's too much. And then I got scared. Um, okay. So I don't drink the whole can at once though. And let's uh, close out the uh, episode with more on uh, Roe versus Wade, as promised at the top of the show. This one is from the right stance on uh, the Kate Cox uh, ruling. This is from Breitbart. Uh, pregnant woman leaves Texas to abort baby with disability after state Supreme Court blocked procedure. And I thought specifically I chose this article because of the wording that they use in the um, headline. It's the only place that I saw that it was using disability. So they're making her seem like she's an evil woman who is wants to abort her kid because it has a disability, which is not so. We know that this that ha- they have a almost 100% rate of a, of the kid having a fatal condition, which is far different from a disability, Breitbart, and you know better than that. But you don't care cuz you're Breitbart. A woman who is 21 weeks pregnant is seeking an abortion outside of Texas after the state's Supreme Court blocked a lower court order on Friday allowing the procedure the pregnant woman and Dallas mother of two, Kate Cox, 31, has already left the state to have an abortion, her attorney said Monday. According to USA Today, the Center for Reproductive Rights filed a lawsuit on her behalf to obtain an abortion after she learned that her unborn baby has uh, trisomy 18, otherwise known as Edwards syndrome, which we learned in the other article. She's been in and out of the emergency room and she couldn't wait any longer. A lot of these are the same. Um, can you look up the pronunciation on trisomy um, I just we just said it so many times. I want to see how it's really said. Uh, trisomy 18 is a very severe genetic condition that can cause mul- multiple birth defects. 95% of babies with the condition do not survive full term. And so they're giving the real information in here, but the fucking headline is so clickbaity that it made me very angry. Um, and 10% of babies born with the condition temp- typically do not survive past their first year, according to the Cleveland Clinic. Trisomy. Trisomy. Okay. Okay. Trisomy. Thank you. Uh, There are rare cases of people born with trisomy 18 living much longer, such such as the daughter of former Republican U.S. Senator and pro-life advocate Rick Santorum, uh, Isabella, who is now 15 years old. And to that I say, how convenient, right? A 2020 scientific journal also describes a 26-year-old woman diagnosed with the condition who has severe growth and intellectual limitations, but has lived much longer than accepted. Uh, expected. So Breitbart, what they did to to show you how they feel about abortion was they digged real deep and they found two people they were able to find two people one who has severe growth and intellectual limitations who lived past the one year mark and they said we're going to put that in right cuz it's it's not really it's it, it doesn't really pertain to most people but it happened two times so let's put that in the article the center for reproductive rights did not elaborate as to where cox went to have the abortion or if the abortion has already taken place um let's see a lot of these other things are things we read in the other article but 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 um because of the mistake. 
All right. I think most of the other stuff is actual real information that we've already covered. But the headline paired with those two instances that they plucked out of the abyss, that is the right stance. And I knew I would find someone. I knew I would find someone. I'm, I'm actually surprised that I didn't find it on Fox and, and happy that I had to go as far right to Breitbart to find um, information that was calling this you know woman a dumb slut uh, in in its own special way. And that to me shows a lot of progress and shows that this is not um, like, as we saw in many polls over the past year, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not what anyone wants on the right or the left. And it could really cause the right to jeopardize the 2024 presidency. So I think the fact that I didn't see this article on Fox and had to go one step further to the right to see it on Breitbart, I think that's actually a really good thing. And there is a lot of real information in here, but they just, you know, did pluck those two instances and make you think that she's aborting a, a disabled baby. Um, like it's just a baby in a wheelchair. And she said, not not on my watch. Uh, and last article of this episode is from Slate. Who determines Kate Cox's health care? Um <clears throat> In a post-Roe world, it is judges who get to decide what a pregnant person must do with a uh, even a non-viable pregnancy. Here is a partial list of the not medically, and this is kind of a companion piece to the er earlier piece that I read, which is why I liked it. Here is a partial list of the not medically trained people who made the medical determination that terminating Kate Cox's 20 plus year uh, week, not 20 year, 20 plus week old pregnancy would not fall under an approved exception to Texas's three overlapping abortion bans. Not one of these people, mind you, knows anything about pregnancy, medicine, or Kate Cox's life. They each just decided that because she did not suffer from a life-threatening physical condition aggravated by, caused by, or arising from a pregnancy that places the female at risk of death or poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function unless the abortion is performed or induced, that she could not access an abortion uh, despite the fact that her fetus did receive from a physician a diagnosis incompatible with life. The list of people with the moral certainty and medical acumen to restrict this woman's access to the health care that would in fact preserve her fertility are, number one, Ken Paxton, Texas near, Texas's nearly impeached attorney general who appealed a lower court order granting Cox permission to terminate her pregnancy, which she had received following a diagnosis of trisomy 18, a genetic anomaly that virtually always results in miscarriage, stillbirth, or infant death, and frequently causes severe physical pain for the mother and may impair her efforts to bear future children. Add to the list Paxton's crack team of lawyers who argue, as ace physicians, that Cox should just have had her abortion in Florida if she wants one so badly, then threatened to prosecute her physician and any hospital which aided Cox in Texas despite the existence of a court order specifically shielding them from prosecution. Number two, all nine justices of the Texas Supreme Court who unanimously determined on Monday in a nine-page opinion that while no one disputes that Ms. Cox's pregnancy has been extremely complicated, like it's a fucking Facebook relationship status, the problem was that when Ms. Cox's physician expressed a good faith belief that her condition met the legal standard for an exception, this was not a sufficient 
uh, quantum of legal certainty upon which to predicate a medical judgment. While noting in their opinion that a pregnant woman does not need a court order to have a life-saving abortion in Texas, the great minds of the court determined that Ms. Cox would not, uh, could not receive a life-saving abortion in Texas without a court order. Next is among those nine eminent medical experts, one must single out Justice John Devine, a radical Christian fundamentalist who ha has bragged of being arrested 37 times for protesting at abortion clinics. His election campaign included a video depicting his wife's decision to continue a high-risk pregnancy, her seventh, which was said to likely end in the deaths of both mother and child. The mother lived, the child lived for an hour. Justice Samuel Alito, who authored the majority opinion in Dobbs in such a way uh, as to uh, arrogate vast sums of medical authority to himself, his colleagues, eminent historical medical experts, such as Sir Matthew Hale, MD ostensibly received from Witchburner College sometime in the seventh, 17th century, uh, and amicus brief spider monkey <laughs> Robert George. While it's true that Alito neither knew nor cared about women's medical needs in his Dobbs opinion, it's also true that without the Dobbs opinion, the Texas Supreme Court and Ken Paxton wouldn't be telling Kate Cox uh, that she is, in effect, an ambulatory coffin for the duration of her pregnancy because government was getting itself out of the abortion regulation business. Justice Brett Kavanaugh is next, who concurred in the Alito opinion in Dobbs that cared not a whit about any actual living human pregnant person. But nonetheless, Kavanaugh managed to congratulate himself on the depth of his feeling, empathy and perception in the making of the decision. Um, uh, quote, amidst extraordinary controversy and challenges, all of the justices who have historically grappled with abortion rights have addressed the abortion issue in good faith after careful deliberation and based on their sincere understanding of the Constitution and of precedent. I have endeavored to do the same. Oh, good. No doubt. Kate Cox is deeply grateful for his good faith grappling with her non-viable, dangerous pregnancy. Next up is Donald Trump, who ran for the 2016 presidency on the promise that women who terminate their pregnancies should receive some form of punishment until he reneged on that and clarified that only their physicians should be punished. It was, after all, his three Supreme Court nominees, none of whom know anything about maternal health, trisomy eight, uh, 18, fetal viability, or really anything medical at all, who came together to decide that the right to an abortion enshrined for 50 years in the lives of all the people who had no such rights at the founding of our country was no longer a right because Matthew Hale and spider monkey George uh, believed this to be science. As a result of this science, Kate Cox decided she had to flee her home state so she might terminate her non-viable pregnancy. So here we are. In, it's 2023 and Texas has elected an all Republican Supreme Court that is now asserting in a written opinion that the judiciary shouldn't be deciding reproductive rights uh, questions because such questions should be left to medical experts at the exact same time that it is second guessing a real live medical expert and granting to itself the sole power to decide which acute medical conditions are life threatening and which are just jolly good fun. I'm going to end that article there just so I have time to do a proper sign off. That's all the information you needed. I wanted to go through the piece people specifically who are making those decisions for us. Thank you so much for joining us um, on this week's Without a Country. I'm Corinne Fisher. Uh, if you are in Chicago this weekend, uh, December 15th and 16th, I'm headlining four shows as Zany's Chicago. Ticket link is available via the Linktree link in my bio. My Instagram is philanthropygal. Please give me a follow. I'm also on that at X, aka Twitter and threads. Um, 
And uh, New Year's Eve, I'm doing a monster show that I do every year at New York Comedy Club East Village. It's 6 p.m. You're going to want to go to this show. It's me. It's Christina Hutchinson, Ryan Long, Danny Polishchuk, Chloe LeBranch, John Campanelli, and Justin Silver. What a fucking banger that would be. It's a great way to start uh, your year off right. Next year, I'm headed to uh, Washington, D.C. at the D.C. Comedy Loft and an assortment of other dates that I'll get to you in the coming future, as well as more Gash shows at the Comedy Store in Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Tell a friend about the show and don't buy leather as a gift for Christmas. Bye.